0: Welcome to Bespoke Investment Group's Bespoke Cast. I'm George Perks, macro strategist for Bespoke Investment Group. Bespoke Cast features conversations with markets professionals and economists whose views we find interesting or insightful into the world of finance and economics. If you like what you hear today, you can learn more about our firm by visiting our website, bespokepremium.com. Bespoke offers financial market research and insight to investors of all types, ranging from individuals to large institutions. You can follow us on Twitter at Bespoke Invest. If you enjoy Bespoke Spokecast, we would also appreciate you reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. This week on Bespoke Cast, we have a name that will be familiar to I think most of our listeners. Josh Brown is the CIO at Ritholtz Wealth Management. He's written multiple books about Wall Street and about the financial industry. He's a regular contributor on CNBC, and he's a great source for not only industry knowledge, but but sort of perspective on a lot of things that go on in the world of finance. And we're really lucky to have him today.
1: Josh, welcome to Bespoke Cast. Hi, George. Thank you so much for having me on.
0: I think it'd be great to start 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 first with a little bit of background about how you got into the industry, what some of your early industry experiences were. Uh, One of your uh, most famous things you're known for is Backstage Wall Street, which is your book about working in the financial industry, working um, at a commissions-based business. So it would be great to sort of start from the beginning and um, coming out of college, how you got into the financial industry.
1: I have a weird backstory. I actually started – I actually started as an intern in between freshman and sophomore years at school just for fun to find something to do for the summer and uh, got a job with like my dad's friend's son in New York City um, cold calling uh, for stockbrokers. And it was uh, it's the summer of 96. And being a broker was like the biggest thing in the world for young men living on Long Island. It was like a great career. You had all these exciting things happening in the markets. You had IPOs like Snapple and Boston Chicken and Callaway Golf, and everyone seemed to be getting rich. Um, So I I got this gig in the city. I didn't know anything about markets or stocks or anything, and it ended up being like a very uh, aggressive, cold-calling, telemarketing thing, and knowing about stocks was almost beside the point. The job was... To get phone appointments for a senior broker, so that he could then call the person back and do his spiel. So you know whatever stock he was pitching that day or or that week. So uh, it turned out I was really good at it. I don't I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> but uh, it was you know I, I wasn't like serious about it, and I felt bad because there were like se- seventy five desks available for cold callers at this firm. And a hundred people showing up each day to do the job, so they would send twenty five people home every morning, so we would line up outside the doors at like seven thirty a m to get in and uh, you know there were people there that were like really trying to do it as a career, like like grown men and uh, I was like this kid, and I was and they were like, "Dude, why are you even here? Why are you taking up a, sp- a spot but um I did it. The guy I worked for was making like $100,000 a month or something. He was a bouncer a month prior to becoming a broker. Um, and, and uh, you know, these guys didn't really know anything. They just got really good at memorizing a script and they were selling the hottest thing of the day. And sometimes it was like a legitimate IPO that they had a small piece of from, you know, like a Merrill Lynch or something. And sometimes it was schlock. But, you know, I didn't know anything. I was just really good at setting up these these appointments and getting through to millionaires who wa- actually wanted to hear about IPOs and and the hot stock of the day. It was like it was not that hard because in that day there was no internet, so you know the people taking the call they were like, yeah yeah yeah, call me, call you know have your broker call me when when he has something to talk about.
0: This sounds a lot like like two different movies I'm I'm thinking of right now that people might be familiar with. It sounds like you know the bouncer. That was your boss. That sounds a bit like uh, Vin Diesel in Boiler Room, right? Right. Um, and then the other one is is um, The Wolf of Wall Street. I mean, it's the exact same thing. It's have a script. I don't care about anything but you executing the script. We know the script works. Just go out and do it and get rich people on the phone.
1: Well, that's 100% what it was. And those movies were based on these people. And I, the, so the firm – Here's the big reveal. The firm that I I was working at that summer um, at 19 years old, it turns out that was Duke and Company, which was the offshoot from Stratton Oakmont. It was like the city version of of Stratton. It was an ex-Stratton guy who launched a firm on Third Avenue, uh, coincidentally, next door to the lipstick building where Madoff was at the time. Um, And And uh, you know, it looked look when you George when you walked into this place, everyone was in a three piece suit. All of the all of the part the quote unquote senior partners they were pulling up in Lincoln Town cars, being chauffeured to work. Like if you're a kid in college, you don't you don't know you know that that anything is amiss. It looks like uh, it looks like Charlie Sheen is about to walk in, like from Wall Street. Like it it and they were really good at that, you know, crafting that appearance of respectability. And the truth is, they were very clever. They would only pitch legitimate stocks to open up the new account. So like they would call people with things that they heard of like, oh, I want you to buy Bristol Myers. You know, our analyst says uh, it's going to go up 10% after earnings or whatever. And that was an easy sale because there's no E-Trade. So for investors around the country that wanted access to the market and didn't have a local broker coming to them with fresh ideas, they would just buy. They would send they would send checks for like six figures based on a phone call from New York. It it was happening every minute of every day in this place. So for me, I was like, this is sick. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. Um, I, you know, I wasn't privy to the fact that two trades down the road, they were selling these guys, you know, a six dollar stock that the firm brought into inventory at a dollar, you know, and, and they had like a two a two dollar spread in it. And they were splitting essentially a twenty percent commission with the firm and the broker. Um, you know, they, they they didn't they didn't let the the uh, the cold callers in on on that part of it. Um, you know, pre Series Seven. But you know, look, that was what was going on, and uh, you know, I, it was probably a couple of years removed from Jordan Belfort being arrested. But it was still that continued for like another ten years.
0: You did that as your internship. That was your sort of entree to the industry.
1: So, yeah, so I did, I did that, and then, and then I had worked at a couple of other firms of, of varying states of, of uh, respectability. Uh, they all got bought out. You know, I worked at a firm that, like, um, got bought out by Oppenheimer. So, like, I worked at a few firms um, when I was done with school, and I really loved – so what I really fell in love with was the market. And it was just, like, kind of this thing where I was like, all right, this is my way in. You know, I'm not an investment banker. I don't have Ivy League. I'm not like, uh, you know, uh, I'm not. I'm not going to start out at uh, Goldman Sachs. Like, if I want to get involved with the market, this is my best entree: is to be a retail broker, financial advisor, whatever. So I did that, um, and then it's really the financial crisis that totally turns my world upside down, and it's where the reform broker is born. Um, it's really that 08, 09 period that changes everything in my life.
0: So, you were working as a broker, and then the financial crisis hits. Uh, you know, things are going fine in the mid 2000s. You know, you're uh, working to help clients buy and sell stock, and then the financial crisis hits, and obviously that sends. Uh, earthquakes through the entire financial industry, how did that affect you personally and how did that sort of lead to reform broker?
1: Yeah. So, so basically, basically I'm like in my, I don't know, I guess I'm in my late twenties at the time and, um, I had my first baby and I'm living in Manhattan and I'm working at a regional broker dealer and I'm transactional. So I eat what I kill basically. And, uh, if my clients aren't buying and selling stuff, I'm not earning any money. And when the crisis begins to unfold, um, and I know it, like it's kind of technically started in, in the summer of 06 or 07, but really it's like when Bear Stearns goes down, and I have 20 friends that work at Bear Stearns, um, and I'm hearing the stories about you know what's really happening at these firms, and I'm starting to look outside of my firm for information. So I'm not listening to the analysts anymore because they, they had no idea what was going on. I'm reading people like Barry Redholtz who's talking about – how median incomes cannot possibly sustain housing prices, um, the flow-through effects of um, you know m- mortgages to, to Wall Street banks, to the stock market. Like I'm starting to really educate myself. Um, and the more I do that, the more I realize the worst thing I could do, the worst thing I could do is call up my clients and have them be buying and selling shit. Like it's just – like it's just – the, it's antithetical to financial advice for, for someone like me in the position I was in when even Greenspan and Paulson at Treasury don't know what's happening. So I'm going to get on the phone with people and tell them I know what's going to happen. You know, I'm, I'm going to tell people, oh, now you should sell this. Now you should buy that. So it wasn't paralysis. It was just like, look, the right thing to do for my clients right now is just like keep them calm, make sure they're not leveraged. Make sure that uh, they can stick with what they own and not um, call them up pushing you know, the new investment of the week.
0: And was that, was that contrary to what the firm sort of would ideally have liked you to be doing? Like, you, did you get, oh, did you get uh,
1: you know, conflict dude, with management? Ostracized. Yeah. Ostracized because they were like – well, first of all, I was a co-branch manager of, of the New York City office. And, and they were like, dude, you're like the sales manager. How could you not? How could you? How could you be sitting on your hands? Like, what? What do you expect the other brokers to do? And you know, months and months and months of that went by, and I would come to work, make a few calls to my clients. Hey, we're not doing anything right now. Let's just see what happens, and then I would spend the rest of the day reading, and uh, I would go home at the end of the month with a paycheck for like four hundred dollars, and my wife was like, Josh you know, we uh, we can't live this way. Uh, and I would explain to her, I would say like, like look, I could go into work right now and, and, and write $20,000 gross production in a day. Like I could do it right this second. I can flip out of mutual funds and get out of a few stocks and I could buy the new closed-end fund IPO that's coming out from Cohen and Steers and I could do all this stuff, um, but it's not the right thing to do. I'm going to feel sick about it. And I might end up hurting my clients, and you know, I would say that to her like month after month, and then eventually she's finally like, "Josh, don't you realize if you're in a career where you have to screw people over in order to make a monthly uh paycheck, you're in the wrong business. It's not you, totally. you can't you can't do it and like i would I don't know how long it would have taken i'm I'm like an idiot. I don't know how long it would have taken me to come to that realization myself, George. Um, but fortunately she kind of was just like, you know, not like threatening me or, or like just like Josh, think about this. You're you're against your customers. And so that was the the genesis of the reformed broker blog. I had to jump through all sorts of hurdles with compliance in order to put it up. Quite frankly, they knew the firm was gonna fold anyway. You know, the firm was in trouble like every other firm. So like they were like, All right, do your stupid blog. We have bigger things to worry about. So, I was able to start on a daily basis, just like venting a little bit, like talking about that conflict, talking about all the lies coming out of AIG and Lehman and Goldman, and just like, I don't want to say stream of consciousness, but just being myself. And fortunately, it found an audience really quickly. And that's the only reason why I kept it going, because it was a lot of work. But I started, you know, you start getting emails like, dude, I can't believe you're saying these things, but, you know, keep going. So, I did.
0: To back up just a little bit, it would be interesting to sort of hear what you think let you see what was going on. I'm sure a lot of people saw it, but sort of see what was going on and then actually act on it, right? Like actually not doing anything to move your clients around, taking those $400 paychecks what was it about your life and about your experience in the world that sort of let you have that clarity and and take that action when so many other people didn't and you know obviously not not to you know indict those that didn't everyone does stuff for different reasons and you know individual stories really do matter but you know, you're pretty unique in that you actually put action to something you saw as opposed to just saying, oh, well, that's the way the world works. I got to keep putting food on the table. So what was it for you that, that let you do that?
1: So I think I have like this, this, um, <laughs> I think I have like this self-righteousness that's really like off-putting to other people, but I can't help it. Like, I kind of feel like once I have identified what the right thing to do is, I become very stubborn, and uh, <laughs> I know what that's we'll, like.
0: Just FYI, <laughs> yeah, and,
1: and and we'll get into that later. We'll talk a little bit about like the advertising companies coming to me from my blog and the shit they want me to do, um, and and how many things I've said no to. Like, well, we could talk about that later. But like, I just have that. I don't know if it's like a gene or, um, I just I just have something about me that I just, um, it, it, I just look at I I I end up, it's it's bad. But I like – I look down on people that I think are so compromised that like they're beyond hope um, and I try to keep it to myself because I'm sure there have been times in my life where I did something selfishly that wasn't great for other people and uh, – well, I know for a fact that I have and uh, so I'm not you know – I'm not perfect but this was just something where – I just couldn't stand it.
0: When you were in high school, were you the kid that was like, you know, stopping people from throwing other kids in lockers? Or like when you were on the playground in elementary school, were you the one that was like letting other kids have the swing set? Like were, were your parents the ones that instilled that in you? Because I just, I just think it's really interesting that, that somebody would sort of stand up like that in in a, kind of a singular way. And I mean, not to make you out as a saint or whatever, but like, you know, it's it's unique. It's I, I think it's even more unique than the fact that, you know, you, you have a very successful business business now and and have a really great reputation deserved as a commentator like like what what was it in your life where that sort of instinct first revealed itself to you you know what i mean
1: i don't yeah no i you know what it's a great question and i don't i don't know that that characterized my whole life i definitely wasn't courageous enough to stand up to bullies on behalf of others but if somebody was being like not included in like a a social group i have specific memories where i would like like we would be playing football in someone's driveway and then the kid that lived down the street wasn't invited because like the parents didn't get along or something like I would walk over and grab that kid, and bring him in. Like I definitely was that kind of kid. I don't know that I was like uh, a justice warrior or, or like, <laughs> but like, uh, so, so, so back to the maelstrom, you know, I'm watching guys treating FAZ and TZA and TNA and for the viewers that aren't aware. These had just come out. They were the triple leveraged ETFs that let you be like three times long the banks or three times short the small caps. And these were securities that were changing in price on an intraday basis in 2008. I, I swear to you, by like 25%. Yeah. Like, like you could get lo- triple long the banks in the morning, and Barney Frank would do a TV appearance saying everything's fine, and that thing would go up 20 or 30% that day. So, I was watching retail brokers trade these things for their client accounts, and I was just like what what are these guys doing?" And they were like doing well in some cases they were they were making their clients a fortune, and they were taking two and a half percent commissions in both directions and and on top of it, they were using margin. So imagine you send me fifty thousand 000- yes, yeah, dude you have no idea, and not just margining, not just margining. The, the clearing agent um, – I forget which clearing agent it was at the time. Maybe it was National Financial, which is Fidelity. I don't know. But the clearing agent was like giving you up to 10 times equity on a day trade. So, so I kid you not. I would watch like a farmer in Iowa send $50,000 to a kid from Staten Island with a Series 7 working two desks over for me. The kid would call the guy and say, all right, here's the playbook today. We're going to go triple long the banks because I think Greenspan is going to speak at 1 p.m. and he's going to reassure the market. So he would put on the trade, but not just using 50000 He would put like a $400,000 trade on because he knew he was getting out before the close. So he would be like nine times equity on a triple leveraged. So like if he was right, he could turn – you know, 50,000 in principle into like $400,000 on that trade. And if he was wrong, the guy was wiped out. And I was just watching this go on and just like, look, at the time I felt like I was in hell, but I look back on it, you know, five years ago, I started to make my peace with my past. And I said, like, I had front row seats for the world series of bad investing. And I may make a lot of mistakes in my life going forward. But like there are many, many, many mistakes that I will never make because I've seen the absolute epitome, like the worst possible versions of behavioral uh, foibles. You know, I, like, I, like I've seen it all. So I, I kind of look at that time in my life as really unfortunate and, and unhappy in a lot of ways. But I do think that I gained a type of experience that is one of a kind. I don't think they teach this stuff.
0: No, they certainly don't. And that led you eventually to uh, Barry Ritholtz. You had mentioned him earlier. Uh, you're now the CIO for for Ritholtz Wealth Management. How did that all start? How did you end up um, involved with Barry? And, and how does the firm look today um, since that starting point?
1: Actually, I'm not the CIO. I'm the CEO. Oh, I'm sorry. No, no, leave it in. I want Barry to hear that. Okay. So, so so actually, I'm not even on the investment committee, and that's and that's on purpose, which we can get into later. Um, I'm the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth. Barry is the chairman and the CIO, and Barry kind of saved me because, you know, I mentioned earlier. So we're going through the crisis. We would have analysts come out, legitimate analysts, you know, guys doing their best, women doing their best. They would come out, they'd say, "All right." Today we're going to buy these stocks because I think they're going to get killed less than the other stocks. Like that was the – in the crisis, that was the, that was the research meeting. So I would listen to that and I would say, well, this is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Um, and that forced me to become a little bit autodidactic and to go out and find other sources of information. So I started reading the big picture, which was I think the first or second or third financial blog uh, in existence – And Barry nailed, nailed every single aspect of what was going on day after day. He saw it in advance. He was documenting it in real time. Um, The comment section alone on the big picture under each of his posts had more useful information than an entire day's worth of the Wall Street Journal back in those days. So I I was reading Barry and Barry – it enabled me to understand what was going on better than any other news source, and I think that helped me with my clients. So when the crisis was over and I started looking how, how do I get out of brokerage, um, I, ha- I got very lucky. I went to uh, a Howard Lindzen event out in San Diego. The first person I met sitting by the pool was Barry, and uh, you know we hit it off immediately. We have a lot in common um, we're both uh, chubby Jewish guys from Long Island, uh, <laughs> and, and you know what? And 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 we, we hit it off. And and I told him what his blog meant to me, and he was like, "Look, we're starting an advisory side of the research firm I'm at. You should talk to my partner, who's hiring advisors." And uh, you know, from from there, it was it was a no brainer.
0: The Ritholtz approach is very much biased towards indexing. Um, You guys do a lot of planning work with your clients as well um a lot of stuff that i think a traditional you know call up and get me into a stock type broker uh wouldn't do wouldn't care about wasn't incented to do uh i'd like to talk about that from a couple angles i I think the first and easiest way to look at it is the indexing side so uh talk a little bit about your approach to passive management
1: yeah so i don't think indexing and passive are the same thing Um, Okay, Talk about that. I know you understand this, so I I don't mean to be pedantic, but I think I think the right way to to look at how we manage money is the do less approach and the idea of being strategic in that we want to set things up in advance so we can make as few decisions as possible um, in the future. And
0: because making decisions is hard, and I think this is something that doesn't really gel with people until they spend a fair bit of time around markets. Just the act of deciding is time-consuming, painful, and opens you up to mistakes. So if you can avoid deciding on things, that's actually a good thing in a lot of cases.
1: For us, yeah, for us, it's, it's measure, measure twice or, or measure thrice, cut once. Um, the alternative is every day we're going to try to figure out what the right thing is to do. And I can't imagine anyone really thinking that that's so. We're so we're rules based, and that doesn't mean necessarily mean indexing. And just to give you some insight, our portfolios, you might find you might find exposure to different areas of the world, different asset classes, from Vanguard, from Dimensional Funds, from iShares, from uh, State Street, from uh, Wisdom Tree, uh, O'Shaughnessy Asset Management. You know, we're working. We're building bespoke portfolios with outside managers for things like tax-free muni bonds. So we're 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 trying to keep costs low, and we're trying to make only good decisions, and we're trying to do the majority of our decision making in advance, and that includes tactical. Uh, we run tactical on a rules-based program, so that while the market is rallying or correcting, we're not making calls. We've already decided what we're going to do when. Uh, well in advance, and it doesn't mean that every single thing we do is gonna work, um, but we've got a framework for uh, where the probabilities are and and you know I think like that look compared to what most other people are doing, which is reacting to headlines or listening to people with price target, like that seems like madness to me i 've seen too much I'm, I'm I'm in this game like twenty years. How could I possibly have an investment strategy that involves me making a million decisions right a year. It's it's ridiculous.
0: And and yet at the same time though you you do do some stuff that looks a little bit like that at least right like so you know you you regularly talk about single stocks on um, CNBC. Uh, you regularly tweet about single stock stories or stuff that's that's doing well. So so how do you sort of I mean and I, I can see how that would bolt in in a small fashion to an overall strategy that's much more heavily weighted towards a asset allocation rules based approach. But how do you sort of make sure that you're not thinking too much in terms of sort of short term or ad hoc stuff while at the same time still having that that sort of in your toolkit?
1: So that's a great question. I love the stock market. Um, I mentioned earlier, it's the first thing I fell in love with. Um, and it's something that I hope I'm involved with the rest of my life. In my spare time, I'm reading books about the history of the stock market. Like, I will always be involved emotionally with individual stocks, and I will always be following the trends that are happening in markets and what sector is popular and what's out of favor and which companies are dominating the indices. I think that having that kind of contextual knowledge is extremely important. I understand that there's a certain contingent of the financial advisor industry where they look at every single thing as noise and they pay attention to nothing, and they just blindly allocate and... They, they mock people who are paying attention to what stocks are doing on a given day, week, month, and that's fine if that works for them. I have a very educated clientele, um, probably a higher uh, – uh, pro- probably a very difficult clientele for the average advisor to talk to, and that's just by virtue of how they find us. Right. Have to keep it, they have to keep in mind that the majority of our clients are reading financial blogs Think about the kind of person that's reading a financial blog. That is an intellectually curious person who is going way outside the Facebook news bubble to find alternative viewpoints. That's not a person that I can say, yeah, I don't know what's going on with the market. I don't give a shit. It's irrelevant. Like that's not ever going to be a satisfying answer to that person and nor should it. Um, So we spent a lot of time. Talking about what's happening on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. But, George, that is not the same as then taking the next step and saying this is actionable or, yeah, this is what's going on and here's what we're going to do about it. So there's a, there's a, there's a bridge too far. Right? So, and, so do you
0: not then at all, for instance, in client portfolios, ever say, "Well, this is a hot stock. We like the story here." No, no, we're no, we're doing not doing this. That. Do you do you do that at all with your own money, as you, as sort of you know part of what you do to stay engaged in the market? Because you know, and again, I don't think there's anything wrong with doing it in a certain uh, you know percentage of your net worth. You know, guys have PAS, and part of the reason to have PAS is because it's helpful to stay engaged and stuff, and it's fun to do, even if you don't make a ton of money doing it, right? like like there's nothing wrong with that um i i just you know to me it it seems really contradictory to sort of talk about passive rules based um you know that sort of approach and then to sort of at the same time be be doing other stuff i don't think it is necessarily contradictory but it sort of seems that way right
1: um i i don't i don't i don't find that people see it as contradictory i mean i i own like A couple of handfuls of individual stocks and like my SEP IRA, but my real money is managed in the same models that my client's money, uh, is, you know, my, my, our firm's 401k runs identical models to what we give our clients. So, so everyone working in the firm that's contributing to their 401k, they're putting it into the same strategic asset allocation models as our, our clients have, Uh, my family members have accounts at the firm. They're getting the same models. And then. You know, I own blue, some blue chip stocks on the side um, that I, I do find it helpful to stay engaged in the market. Um, and, and it's not that I'm like trading to try to like beat the index. Um, it's, it's not the purpose. Um, but there are some individual stocks that, that I have holdings in. And by the way, we have clients that come to us where they're like, I've been buying and selling stocks for myself my whole life. I've looked at my results. I realized that I could have done a lot better if someone else were doing this. Um, but <laughs> I still want to keep a little trading account on the side because I enjoy it and I don't care what the results are. It's just part of my life and it's how I stay engaged. And our answer to that is if, if you really want to do that, then you should do that because we are not going to scratch that itch for you. Josh is not going to call you at 10 a.m., and tell you we're getting long adobe here like it's never going to happen we're not brokers we're not a hedge fund so you know for a client that's like look man i just want to trade apple calls every once in a while and i don't want you guys to look down on me we don't care do it keep a small account you we will even set it up for them at our you know we custody with schwab and with td we'll even set up that little side pocket for them to do their own trading the only the only um Stipulation is don't use margin and don't ask us to to send you more if if you blow that up. And by the way, I hope you triple your own account. Congrat, you know that makes our job easier as the financial planners. It makes your future liabilities easier to fund if you do well with your own account. So we're fine with that. And
0: the other thing that's interesting too, like just having fun with the markets, is something I think that is really underrated as. An edge, a source of edge, both for individual investors and for folks that do it for a living, right? If what it takes for you to stay engaged in what's going on and stay on top of your finances and stay, you know, uh, aware of what the world looks like is to, you know, underperform a little bit by trading Apple calls or Tesla puts or whatever. You know, as long as it's part of a broader strategy where you're like, okay, you know, I'm I'm not going to get good returns here, but it's something I enjoy doing and it keeps me engaged, then you know, that's a cost of staying on top of the market, just like a Bloomberg terminal would be right. I, you know, it. it, I I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, and and there's nothing more sad also in this industry than seeing guys who've been sitting in the same desk for 30 years who don't like what they do, who, who, you know, kind of sit there and, you know, plug the machine every day. And they're kind of like, Oh, I don't want to come into work. And I, this is not what I want to be. I'd rather be on a beach somewhere or whatever. It's like, that sucks like i never want to be that guy you know
1: you know you know how you know how fucking weird it is in our industry that people are like scolding people um for for recreationally being interested in the market like can you like can you imagine going to a real estate uh investor like somebody that bought an apartment building and is like renting out the apartments he's like a he's like a surgeon and, and he has real estate on you imagine going to that guy and saying let me see your returns okay you would have done better in equity office properties REIT um, or like you would you would have done better if you owned the Vanguard REIT ETF. You're screwing up. And the guy's just like, dude, what are you talking about? I'm, I'm investing in real estate. Leave me alone. Nobody would ever do that. But we do that with the stock market and it's a little bit weird and I don't quite understand why pros have this condescending attitude toward retail investors who – Um, They just like – like everyone has hobbies. Is it it wiser to be doing collectible cars and and fixing up Corvettes? Like is that somehow wiser? Probably not. But it's what the the person does. And by the way, all the criticism about like Donald Trump – and we're not – I know we're not going to go there on on this podcast. The one thing that that I thought was the stupidest criticism of him was where they compared – the growth in his stated net worth to the S&P like they were like oh when he inherited all this money from fred he should have just bought he should have just bought uh, the vanguard 500 and his net worth would have been hot it's like dude this is the guy's life's work what did you want him to do all that time while the S&P may or may not have done better for him so like uh, all the criticism of him much of which I, I agree with, like that one thing I found to be really stupid, so I think like if people are enjoying the way they 're investing, whether they 're buying houses in their town, fixing them up and selling them, or they're're they're, they're buying j p. Morgan and google and and watching them go up and down, like w- leave people alone let people <laughs> let people have their interests for god 's sake right <laughs> yeah so totally. i 'm with you i 'm with you on that
0: yeah, uh so back to the of, I had mentioned earlier there are two angles I'd like to talk about with regards to Ritholtz. The other thing that you guys are really involved with is the planning and the sort of services that are ancillary to the idea of buying and selling stocks. Um, yeah that is something we've talked about with a number of guests that that has sort of become much more prominent throughout the industry right this idea that just being a transactional window for people to access a market is not gonna do it anymore that's not what you're there for whether it's because people don't want to pay commissions whether it's because people have more trust in a fee-based system whatever um, people are headed that way and if you're going to be Providing stuff in that business model, you have to do more than just say, "Okay, well you can buy Vanguard from me right like that's not going to do it so what are the sort of planning nuts and bolts planning services you guys offer? how does that fit into the overall value proposition of your of your um, financial advisor uh, business from a market access perspective?
1: when Barry and I first started working together um, and, and and by the way Barry is not a, a financial advisor Barry was a chief strategist for a series of brokerage firms. He, he was never directly talking to clients. So when we started working together, basically these are people that were reading Barry and they were just like, I need to do something smart with my money. I trust Barry. He seems to know what's going on. So I was the financial advisor of record. And what we were doing I thought was, was, was okay, um, but basically it was asset ma- it was high-touch asset management. So it was like, all right, we're gonna build you a portfolio. Um, tell us about yourself. Let's try to figure out, you know, what you're investing for. Um, you know, let's do a risk tolerance questionnaire, which totally ridiculous, but that was kind of like an industry standard thing um, that we've evolved from. But we'd come up with a portfolio and, um, you know, build some models for different types of people. Uh, but we realized like we're not really addressing these people's core concerns. We're not really helping them. I mean we're giving them a good portfolio that we're proud of and hopefully we're earning them returns, but um, we're not answering the real question. And the real question, George, is am I going to be okay? like, like a
0: yeah because because a return number is just a number it's
1: totally absolute no, it, you know yeah. whether
0: whether you can pay for health care in your you know later on in life or whether you can afford to buy a vacation home or whether you can afford to put your kids through college or whatever the case may be that is the tangible stuff that matters right
1: right so so like we would have like all right quarterly update let's call up uh, the parks family and we would talk to you and your lovely wife and say mr. and mrs parks this is your Returns for the last quarter. Emerging markets did 11%, and U.S. large caps did 7%. And um, you know, this is what Treasuries did, and uh, you know, this is us versus the benchmark, and this is your standard deviation. And and they didn't say it out loud, but it was so obvious. They were like, "What the fuck does this have to do with anything?" And that's what asset management is. It's it's divorced from the real questions and needs of the client. So. Then we, we had the really good fortune of getting an email from a guy named Chris Venn, who is now our firm's director of financial planning. But this is when we were at the other firm before we started our own. And Chris is like, listen, um, I'm at Wells Fargo. I went through this really intense uh, training program for CFPs. Um, I want to come down and just you know, see what you guys are doing because I read both your blogs and I, I think I might be able to help. And I didn't realize, but he had talked himself into a job interview basically. Um, it's, it sounded like he was just going to come and hang with us, but he was basically looking at what we were doing and he's like, "And he's like, you guys are missing the really big thing. What your readers really want is the answers to the questions, will I be able to do what I want to do? Um, am I going to be okay? What is a market downturn going to mean for my future plans, et cetera? And you're not answering those questions. What you're doing is giving them – a mix of funds and stocks and, and it's great, but it's, it's not the thing. So he totally convinced us that we needed to reorient our practice around our clients needs, not our own brilliance, um, in, in selecting asset allocations. And once we did that, it was like a rocket took off. We just absolutely, we just absolutely exploded. We went from like 60 million in client assets to 90 million, launched our own firm, we went from 90 to 200. We went from 200 to 400 a year later. Like be, that big insight that if we could help clients answer those questions, not with guarantees but with probabilities and with a, guide, a guideline, kind of like a path to get to where they needed to be. And we could tell them – by the way, you could ask a client, what's your risk tolerance? If the market was down that day, they're going to say, oh, no, 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 I, I don't like a lot of risk. If the market was up a lot that day, they're like, oh, I can take – I can handle risk. So That's like a useless waste of time. Um, the real questions are what are you trying to do in the future? And then I will tell you what your risk tolerance is. You don't know what your risk tolerance is. You know how you feel. And, and forget about your risk tolerance. Let's talk about what your needs are. And then I'll tell you how much risk you have to take. And that's a totally – once you start doing that for people – that's value add and then the asset management George that comes as a consequence of the financial plan is really interesting but asset allocation minus a financial plan being in place it's like you 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 built a house without without a blueprint you you know you just you built it as you went and by the way we see multi-million dollar portfolios from other firms every week. People that we're talking to about becoming clients send us their statements from other firms. That is what most wealth management still looks like. I call it mutual fund salad. We get eighty-page statement from a brokerage, you know, wirehouse oh, yeah. or whatever. Eighty yeah. pages of bullshit, and it's like, how? What is this? What, what we see, is, we see what is, the exact
0: same thing too. Yeah, what, is, not, <laughs> right.
1: what is the, What is this portfolio in service to? What are you trying to do with it? I don't know. Well, how did you end up with a fund that owns Iraqi dinar? How did you end up with nine different non-traded uh, real estate investment trusts? What the, how did this come about? And I already know how it came about. It's because the advisor, the quote-unquote advisor who's really a salesperson, a broker, is sitting in his office – They, they, the the wholesaler comes in and takes eight of them out to a steakhouse. And then the guy gets back from lunch and he scrolls through his book and he says, all right, that was a really cool fund I just heard about. Let me see which of my clients has cash available. They call it an opportunity list. And they'll say, all right, this guy, he could do 20,000. This guy could do 50,000. And they'll just tuck in shares of the fund where the guy took them to, to lunch or to a basketball game. And if you repeat that, over eight years and your portfolio looks like uh, a jackson pollock it's just splatter painted funds and stocks and whatever you know and and the advisor probably can't even remember why did i buy this guy forty thousand dollars worth of this etf the other day i don't know maybe i saw a commercial about it um and and so we clean that up and the way we do it is with planning so when people are like oh could you Look at our assets and give us an appraisal of them. I don't know anything about your assets. Let's talk about what your life is about and what your priorities are and what you're trying to do with with the next 30, 40, 50 years. And then we'll, we'll, we'll work backwards and we'll say, okay, if this is what we need to accomplish, what's the right asset allocation for that? And so the individual holdings that somebody has become way less important.
0: You're a busy guy. You, I mean, the planning, you, you're you on CNBC every day, right? Uh, you, you regularly write blog posts that are lengthy and well thought out. You tweet all the time, almost as much as I do. <laughs> um, how do you balance all... I'm, ba- I'm barely holding it how together, How do you balance George? all the demands on your time? I mean, and, and not to mention your barely family, your friends, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? H- how do you make it all work?
1: Right. So... Um, I I guess the best way that I usually answer that question is like um, th- these aren't distinct activities. All of this is in service to running the firm. So somebody, uh, I forget which which book it was. Some some consult management consultant or management expert was talking about this idea of like, don't work in your practice, work on your practice, um, and you can only do that when you've got really talented people inside of the firm doing very specific roles every day. So we have a a chief technology officer. We have um, an office manager. We have a a director of research. We have a director of financial planning. I have nine client-facing advisors, most of which are CFPs. Like I have people on a day-to-day basis just doing incredible work, incredible work. Um, I have an amazing squad, and I shout these people out all the time because I just – there's no way this firm could run with just one or two people. Um, it's really an ensemble. It's really a team effort. And the fact that all of these bases are being covered by hyper-talent – look, these are people, CFAs, CFPs. I have two veterans of the Afghan and, uh, Afghanistan and Iraq War, um, a, a, a naval flight officer. And and an army combat veteran. These are the people that are on the front lines for my firm um, and and working directly with clients each day um, and working with our custody firms and talking to our vendors on the asset management side, et cetera. So there's a lot happening behind the scenes, and I'm very fortunate. I get to focus on what I think I'm best at, which is communicating with investors. So um, it's not three distinct things. It's all one. Our clients are reading our blogs. It's one of the primary ways that they hear from us day to day. Our our clients are very lucky because most investors have an advisor that they speak with a few times a year. Um, Our clients don't expect to get us on the phone every day, nor do they want to. They're busy also. But something happens in the market. They feel like they want to have some sense of what we think about it. They know where to go. We have five uh, of, I believe, in my opinion, five of the top 20 financial blogs in the world are being written by people at my firm. Um, you know, we've got people that are writing at Bloomberg View. We've got people on Bloomberg Radio. We've got people regularly quoted in Barron's, the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. We're putting out blogs like Michael's uh, uh, Irrelevant Investor, which is happening three or four times a week. Ben Carlson at a Wealth of Common Sense is writing daily. Barry's writing daily I'm writing daily. Uh, Tony Isola is writing three or four times a week, so we will never have a clientele that is looking at something that happens in the market or the economy or even geopolitical and saying, "Oh man, this makes me nervous. I hope my guys are or you know I hope my my advisors are watching that. They know that we're watching it doesn't mean that we have the answer to everything that's happening, but they know that there's a hand on the wheel, and I think that that becomes a really important facet of the future of our industry. Like, I think clients want to know and and be able to see that the people that are managing their money are on their game. And I think we really do a really good job at demonstrating that every day.
0: You mentioned earlier that uh, Barry is the CIO and you're the CEO. Uh, you had said we could talk about that later. What's the story there? So explain explain what the structure looks like and and why.
1: Barry writes a lot about um, cognitive issues with investing and a lot about the conflict of business and good investing and how – especially in the crisis, it was amplified. But firms make business decisions that aren't in the best interest of their investors and vice versa um, and, and you know how the old firms used to all be partnerships where everyone had skin in the game. And once they started going public – they lost a lot of the risk. They, they gave the risk to other people, and that, that changed the way they behaved and you know all of those types of things. And so when we set up the structure of the firm, we asked ourselves, how could we minimize the conflicts between the type of investing we're doing for our clients and the idea that we're trying to run a business that is A, profitable, and B, going to be around for a long time? And so I think having the person that makes the business decisions day to day, the CEO role, not involved in the investing for client accounts um, is probably a really good firewall. And that's not to say I have no input or I have no idea what the investment committee is discussing, but the investment committee is very much autonomous um, and is constantly – uh, reviewing what we're doing for different strategies that we run or outside strategies that we bring in, and those things are not um, conflated with what we're trying to do to run the business so i you know I think that that's a really good structure. I'm really proud that that we came to that. It definitely involved some setting egos aside and and compartmentalizing roles, but um i wouldn't go back i wouldn't have it any other way i think a lot of rias it's not like that a lot of rias usually it's it's a gentleman in his 50s uh or he was a Merrill Lynch broker for 20 years then he went out on, on his own 10 years ago and now he's like CEO, he does payroll. He's the only voice on investments, or he has a a committee, but it's not really a committee because he has final say in everything. Like that's how a lot of RIA's look, and and we look a little bit different. Um, So we've got four people that are on the investment committee, and they come from four different perspectives. And uh, I can kind of make strategic decisions for the firm um, without you know thinking about the decisions being made in client accounts.
0: Last thing we want to talk about with you while we had you here today uh, before we do our closing segment, Trading Rich, Trading Cheap, is social media and how you sort of manage your personality online. Uh, it, it's a complicated subject, uh, not only for compliance reasons and the issues that I think a lot of the financial industry faces, but when you get up into the hundreds of thousands or tens of thousands of Twitter followers, you suddenly have a really big microphone that's really easy to point in the wrong direction, totally by accident. Right. Um, Mm -hmm how do you manage that risk for yourself and and also how do you sort of manage the the stuff that comes out of that so when you get mad at somebody like me for instance we've had we've had spats before where we've disagreed over stuff and and you know it hasn't really affected our our relationship we were able to you know jump on and have an awesome hour-long conversation how do you sort of think about that and managing that across all sorts of different personalities that that you interact with online and all sorts of different people around the industry? Um, is there a specific approach you take to that, or or is it just sort of take it day by day?
1: Well, the first is not to do to take it very seriously. Um, not take myself. I don't take myself very seriously. Um, I, I wrote a book about what an idiot I was. Um, you know, the first ten years of my career. So, like, I don't. I don't think people look at me and they're like. Oh, this guy um, knows everything or, or this guy thinks he's a big deal. Like, that's never, by the way, my blog has never been about, oh, let me lecture you on how the world works. I, I think I know some stuff, but the majority of my blog posts are outbound links. Here, go read this. This was good. You know, like, like Here's a topic that I think is important, but I don't know enough about it to give you my take. So here are two things I'm reading about it. And uh, you know, that's been my blog since day one. So it's it's never been like, oh, I'm thirty-five years old. Let me explain to you how the world functions. Like that's not that's not my shtick. So I think if you avoid that type of persona, um, I think people's guards are down and they're not like ready to fight you back on everything. That's the first. The second is how did I handle it when you and I had a little uh tiff on Twitter? Um, I took it offline because I know you and um you know, you're know, you still wrong, by the way, but <laughs> I, I – I, I, no, but I emailed you. And I'm like, dude, you have me all wrong. This is totally not what I was trying to say. You and I talked about it. I didn't have a fight with you on Twitter. I didn't fight for my honor in public because when you have a public disagreement with someone, it's not about getting to the truth or finding a resolution. It's about making yourself come off the best, and that's never going to – that's never going to go well. So I don't fight with anyone on Twitter. And I get – look, no one should feel bad for me. I'm, I'm, I'm living the life I want to live. I'm very happy. Uh, thank God a lot of things fell into place for me. I got very lucky along the way. People have been very kind and supportive to me. Um, there's no better feeling than when we have like a major firm accomplishment. We announce it and people are like cheering us on. Like that's the best feeling on earth. It's worth – it's worth 50 examples of people saying mean things. So, you know, I go on TV. Someone's like, "Oh, look, the king of Queens is on CNBC," or what, you know, <laughs> whatever the fuck they want to say. It's like, "All right, you got me." You know, LOL. Watch, you know, watch me crush this TV show now. No, so like, I, 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 uh, I guess I have a thick skin. I don't take myself very seriously. I recognize that other people who have big followings, I look at some of the comments made to them. And it makes me feel better. Um, I look at some of the abuse hurled at. Look, uh, once you become a little bit well-known, like people are just going to dislike you. And it might not have anything to do with anything that you did specifically. Like you're talking to somebody like, oh, you want to go see that movie this weekend about the astronauts? And uh, like my wife will be like, oh, is that with Sandra Bullock? I'll be like, yeah. She's like, oh, I, I hate her. <laughs> like, <laughs> you're, all right. Like, like meaning you don't like movies she was in? No, I just hate her. I don't want to watch her. Like that's just what happens. And um, look, if someone's going to get really personal and start stalking you online, and that's a different story. There are avenues that you can go down, but that just hasn't really been my experience. I, I've always had trolls. I've always had people that have said mean things. I tend to mute them really quickly. And if I overmute, well, you know, so be it. I'll block people for being nasty, either to myself or to other people that are weighing in on my timeline, and. Um, you know, look, I, I'm I'm like an OG at this. I invented financial Twitter. It was me. This is, I'm talking about like '09. It was me. It was Eric Jackson, Heidi Moore. Um, it was Kelly from CNBC. She was at the Wall Street Journal at the time. She's now She's nowhere. since left She's Twitter. Gone. Uh, Tragic. She was she was so key. Uh, Carl Quintanilla was an early adopter for for CNBC. By the way, um, shout to Carl. Um, but like there was a very small I know I'm forgetting some people that are going to be mad at me, uh, Howard Lindzen, Phil Perlman. But like there was a very small, tight-knit group on financial Twitter. We kind of invented the rules of engagement as we went, what was acceptable, what wasn't. And then all of a sudden, there were a million people talking about finance on Twitter. Carl Icahn came along, Warren Buffett came along. Like The game eventually changed. But I think establishing a following and establishing a little bit of like a code of conduct was probably helpful and one of that – one of the things that I established was that I'm not going to have fights with people uh, on the internet. And by the way, one thing my dad taught me was you only fight back if you actually care what the person thinks. And every time I'm about to flame someone – and by the way, um, I I could absolutely destroy somebody with words if I wanted to. I know that about myself and I really don't want to um, because I don't like if it happens to me. But – Like every time I'm about to just rip someone's wings off, I look at their account, I look at like whatever public persona details there are about them, and I'm just like, why would I do this to this person? Like, yeah, I don't like what he said or what she said, but what what am I going to like, completely ruin their day and just utterly destroy them? To what end? Where is that getting me? So you'll never see me fight with people. You might see me have like a disagreement on a topic. Which I think is the whole purpose of social media, but it's not going to get personal with me online and again, back to what my dad taught me. I really don't care that much what somebody thinks about me. So what's the point, right? So I, I think that's yeah. really the key.
0: Yeah. I. It's interesting to hear you say that. I mean I, I think that is one of the most frustrating things out there is when you see somebody who who you like and you respect and you you know, you think they have good opinions on stuff, that's when it's hard to sort of pull back the horns. It's not like the random eggs, well, they're not eggs anymore, but random eggs or random commenters on blog posts or whatever
1: shadows now yeah
0: I, I, these people's li- you know their opinions what their lives are all about it, it doesn't matter the, it doesn't matter the thing that's really really hard is when you see somebody who again who you like and respect and who has good opinions on stuff say something or do something or behave a certain way that's just so so bad for whatever i mean it could be any number of different things right like no need to give a specific example of any kind everybody knows what these kind of situations look like that's when it's really hard it's not hard.
1: It's yeah, it's polit- It's always like political stuff, racial stuff, um, feminism stuff. I, like, I mean, I
0: see it in markets too, though, Josh. Like, like, like guys just saying stuff that that isn't true or that is really harmful or is just false or whatever the case may be, and it's tough to sort of not just go, "Oh, you are such a," you know, like you you can get into those constructive debates with people, and it, you know, it's not just the markets; it's every subject, like you just mentioned. But it's hard. I mean, it is hard to have self-restraint.
1: Can I tell you something though? The yeah. Trick, the trick is, the trick is just think about them like counterparties, and then you actually are happy that they think what they think. <laughs> that's, that's that's the other side of yeah. your trade. Look at it, look at this maniac. This is the <laughs> this is this is the guy whose money I'm about to take. That you know that's that's not a bad way to look at it. Look, I look the the so I I kind of look at some of the doomers that way. I've been taking their money for eight years. Um. You know, they'll like they'll be right about this 30% crash or whatever happening, but it'll happen after the market's tripled. Um, uh, you know, like like I'm just taking their money, so like they're writing these posts and they're or they're subtweeting me or what? Like, you're dude, you're fucking wrong. You've been wrong every single day. You should kill yourself. But I'm not gonna say that to them because I don't care what they think. Like, I don't need to change their mind, and in fact, it might be better for them to continue on the way they are. And I feel bad for the people that are listening to them. Um, But look, there was a very prominent guy, let's say circa 2010, um, and then sometime around 2013 or 2014, I don't know why, just like he disappeared. He's still out there, but like enough people blocked him and muted him that he's rendered himself irrelevant. And I don't even hear his name anymore. I don't see people retweet him anymore. Nobody that matters is paying attention to this person. And it's not even that like his ideas were wrong, which they completely were, but his attitude was so bad, like he couldn't stomach the fact that there were people that disagreed with him to the point where like he it would just be personal immediately. And, you know, you just look at somebody like that and you say, This guy has to be the worst investor ever to be <laughs> that emotional. Like the worst thing you could be as an investor is, A, someone who takes market moves or dissent amongst traders personally. I mean, come on. That's like 101. And then like somebody who just like has such a strong emotional reaction to people disagreeing with them, you just know this guy sucks as an investor. So everything that follows from there, all the vitriol and, and the anger and the, and the subtweeting, it's like, all right, you go off and do that in the corner. And the best revenge for everyone else that you're starting fights with is going to be living well. And in three years, in five years, let's see where you are versus where they are. And that ended up being the right approach is just like ignore. And then these people become irrelevant. And and then like it crosses over from being, oh, my God, this guy's tweeting at me to, oh, my God, look at this idiot. He's still talking the same nonsense seven, eight years later going nowhere in life. So I think like that. That kind of diffusing um, dissension by just like taking a step back and saying, look look at this person. Why would I ever care what they think enough to argue with them? That's really been, I think, uh, helpful to people that have come this far and have not descended into madness. <laughs> or or close their accounts or whatever.
0: I think that's something we should all strive for is to avoid the descent into madness. So the last thing we'll do uh, before closing out this awesome conversation is a segment we call trading rich, trading cheap. I'm going to throw some terms out to you, and you're going to tell me whether you think they are trading rich, they're they're too expensive, they're overvalued, uh, versus trading cheap, they are not expensive enough,
1: they are undervalued. All um, right. So let me read my disclaimer. Okay. Nothing nothing that I'm about to say in answer to George questions should be deemed as investment advice or a solicitation to buy or sell any securities. All of my guesses uh, at the answers to these questions uh, are subject to change and are gut instinct only. And I have absolutely no way of knowing what's going to happen with any of these asset classes a month from now, two months from now, a year from now, ten years from now. L- okay, luckily for you, go. Josh,
0: only one of these is actually an asset class. So, uh, first up, New York City: trading rich or trading cheap?
1: Uh way, way too rich, but probably going to get richer.
0: Why do you say uh, probably going to get richer? You don't, you don't think there's anything that's going to slow down the behemoth of of demand for New York real estate?
1: Ah, man. i I have like the ultimate love hate relationship with New York. Um you know, I've been in and out of the city my whole life. I lived there for a decade. I worked there for more uh, almost two decades now. i I love New York City. I can't imagine uh, living there. just I was raised in the suburbs, and that's the kind of person I am. And when I look at um apartment value, right now we're looking at new office space, by the way, for the firm. it's it's like, it, I almost feel like I'm on a uh, a candid camera show when they're saying the prices of these things. Um, but it's always been that way, and it seems to have one direction, um, which is up and to the right. So uh, it's too rich, but maybe in five years it will be even more too rich.
0: Nice segue there, since you mentioned the suburbs. Do you think suburban living is trading rich or trading cheap? All these millennials were supposed to be building their lives in cities, and it turns out that suburbs are actually growing much faster in terms of population growth. Uh, wh- wh- what's the story for suburbs, and do you think they're going to become more or less important over time?
1: So I guess the right answer to that is suburb of what, right? Because a suburb, a suburb of Cleveland is not the same as a suburb of uh, – uh, Atlanta or a suburb of Miami. So I I think that's probably case by case, but just the idea of living in the suburbs. Um, I love my life. I wake up, I hear birds chirping in the spring. Um, in the winter, I got to shovel the driveway BFD. Um, you know, I got a really long commute. I try to make it work for me. Um, I sit on the train, I listen to podcasts, I write, I read books. Um, it is what it is. It's the sacrifice I make. So that my kids can grow up, you know, on green fields and riding their bike around. And um, look, you know, there's, I don't know that one is better than another. It's just what I am accustomed to and what I prefer. So I think suburbs are always going to have an allure for for coming generations. I never bought into this idea that every millennial wants to live in a high rise, barely be able to afford to stay there. Um, and and you know. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case with this generation. I don't – look, all the houses on my block are turning over now. The people who were my parents' generation, um, 70s now, they're, they're going. They're out of here. They're going, they're going like to North Shore Towers in Great Neck or they're going to Florida. And, and who's, replacing who's replacing them? Who's replacing them are people in their 20s. I mean they're most, – so, so most of the time their parents are helping them, right? Like, mo- like most of these kids are not coming in with a down payment. Um, all on their own and then doing you know six figures worth of renovation on the house. Like a lot, in a lot of cases, people are coming back uh, who grew up here. They, they, they went to college. They lived in the city. They did that whole thing. They found who they're going to marry. Now the, the wife is pregnant and they are coming back. And in a lot of cases, their boomer parents are helping them afford it because the houses where I live are probably out of reach for uh, most of the people moving back. And it was out of reach when I moved back. Um, you know, but, but, uh, the, the houses are turning over quickly. The realtors are busy and it's young people coming in. It's not new boomers coming from elsewhere.
0: We're going to shift gears a little bit, stay on the subject of New York and New York living, but trading rich or trading cheap. This is going to be a painful question. The Knicks.
1: (sighs) Oh my God. Um, (laughs) <laughs> this, this has been a lifelong frustration for me. My, I blame my dad. Uh, my dad grew up in the '60s, uh, coming down from the Bronx to to the Garden, and he got to watch uh, Earl of the Pearl and Walt, Clyde Frazier and um, Bill Bradley, and you know, just amazing, amazing teams. Even even into the '90s um, with with Ewing and Oakley and and. Uh, Starks and Mark Jackson and, you know, uh, around the time I, I was coming up, we had some decent teams. We had Allen Houston and Sprewell and Camby. We made a few runs into the playoffs. But for the last 17 years, the Knicks have been unwatchable. And I don't know that it will ever change with current ownership. Uh, and current ownership ha- has no need to sell because the garden is always packed. Season tickets are sold out every year and the games are full. Because it's like a thing to do and it's a city of 20 million people if you count the surrounding metropolitan area. So like there's no – like supply demand, like it almost doesn't matter with a sports team in a major metropolitan area like this. Like Jets games are sellouts. So I don't know what's going to happen. If this were like Sacramento or something, it might matter how good or bad the team is. But in New York, it just doesn't seem to matter and uh, I think the Dolans make more money every year. And so, I, I don't know how to answer that question other than to say, I, I wish he would sell the team. I just don't see any reason why he would. If I were him, I wouldn't.
0: No, I mean, sports teams are the new, you know, ultra 1% status signal, right? Like the, yeah. you know, the top of the top of the top because there are only so many of them. It's something that you truly cannot buy if one isn't on the market, and the price you pay for it is going to be commensurate. So, you know, like Balmer with the Lakers or, or whatever, right? Or I uh, saw the Clippers. Yeah. Well, with the Clippers.
1: so. So what's interesting is like the new generation of owners, they're all tech and finance people, and I think they're going to be a better generation of owners in terms of like knowing how to make their teams competitive and using – not like Moneyball but just like using business sense. Um, So like uh, I know the owners of the Bucks, um, a couple of hedge fund managers, uh, James Dynan and and, – like they – they're like crazy smart guys who have done really well with hedge funds and and uh, private equity, and they like they like know what to do business wise. And and it's not that they know basketball better than other people, but they know like how to build a team that's going to be successful. And you see it like like the Bucks are in the playoffs right now. They bought that team for four hundred million, and people said they overpaid. A couple of years later, Bomber buys the Clippers for like. I don't know. What was it? 1.6 or something. It was was something ridiculous like that. It was like a price. It was like a price that was like a, not an economic price. It was like, it was like bomber saying, well, I'm worth 40 and there's only one team that came up for sale and it happens to be in LA. It's on the West coast and I'm on the West coast and I want it and I don't give a shit. How long it takes me to to break even, or what? Like I remember the day he announced that people on Twitter, of course, finance Twitter, like, oh, well, based on cash flows of the, are you out of your mind? <laughs>
0: it's like well we were it's... talking about with the trading accounts earlier, right? Yeah, like, it, he's about... not buying it to make money. He's buying it so he can go sit courtside and and look like he's having an aneurysm every right. day. I mean,
1: right. Like... So how do you so how do you calculate a multiple on Bomber's enjoyment? Good luck. Good luck figuring. It. And by the way, that's like a. Really fascinating subject for investing in general, and talking about Giffen goods—you know, objects that are worth more um, because they go up in price, like, like um, completely contra to the laws of economics. But um, so, so yeah. So you think about like, uh, Golden State Warriors. These guys are these guys are VC guys, right? They're they're like technology investors. They're bodying James Dol- James Dolan, bodying him every year. Because they're applying like data and statistics, and it's not like oh, let me get a celebrity like Isaiah Thomas to come and run the team. Oh, that didn't work. I'll get another celebrity. I'll I'll bring in uh, you know, I'll, I'll bring in the guy that, that Michael Jordan made his career for him. That, like that's not what's going on in on in the West, in the West Coast teams and the new technology centric type of owners. They're like making smart decisions based on best practices of business and technology. And and this is why they're winning. And uh you know, Cuban's a good example of that. Like like that's just not happening to the same degree in the east, unfortunately. And it's certainly not happening on thirty third and seventh.
0: Last one before we close off for the day, uh this is the asset class question. Uh not something you can trade easily, but I'm curious to hear what you think. Alternative investments. So stuff that isn't necessarily what you're going to think about when you're saving for retirement. It's not bonds, it's not stocks, it's uh, macro hedge funds, or it's specific debt asset classes, it's commodities, it's volatility trading, that kind of stuff. Do you think that there, there was a little boom in, in liquid alts uh, that took place over the last few years, it's now sort of petered off a little bit, um, but still quite popular. Do you think that both liquid and illiquid alts are going to become more or less important in the financial industry and in investing in general?
1: I think they'll become more important because there are a um, hundred thousand financial advisors who are looking for ways to differentiate themselves from Vanguard and the robo's and whatever, and uh, they're going to use these types of products to say we're not just, you know, indexing and we're doing more than someone else, um, and that's fine. You know, like I, I'm not mad at people who are trying to express a view contra to stocks and bonds, but, um, we don't really believe in that stuff. Um, and Ben Carlson spent, uh, the early part of his career on the institutional side. His job was to evaluate these invest investments from the buy side. So in other words, people would come and pitch these things to him and it was his job to vet them. And like, he doesn't really believe in them. And none of the research that I've been able to read tells me that I need any of that stuff. Like, I think – you know. I started the conversation saying our overarching investment philosophy is that less is more. That doesn't mean there's not going to be a six-month period where you're like, oh, man, I wish I owned Managed Futures. They just crushed it. But like in the grand scheme of things, none of that stuff is is needed. It's not that it can't help. In some cases, it can help like if you want to like do stuff with volatility or whatever. Like it's fine. It's just – it's not going to work better than traditional investing – um, over the time horizon that matters, because it costs too much, it brings in complications uh, with taxes. Uh, look, we vetted we vetted the liquid off the other day. We had them come in. It's like a, it's like a big product, billions of dollars. They do a great job for their category, um, but like we looked at an aspect of it from a tax perspective for our clients, and it's like even if this thing does what we think it's going to do, in good markets, bad markets, et cetera, The tax consequences alone make it so that, from a fiduciary standpoint, it's a bad idea to include it in portfolios. And you know, we're we're relaying that to like we like the portfolio managers and the quants and the geeks that are behind this thing. And they're like, yeah, but standard deviation and blah. It's like, no, we don't care about any of that shit. Like we can, we our clients are smart enough that we can explain to them why they have to live through volatility. Like our job is not to to tell them that oh. Yeah, we can get you returns without volatility. No. Our job is to say, no, you have to have volatility. But here's the right way to have it. So I'm not an alts guy, and I don't foresee us getting very excited about alts anytime in the future. But I think other people will. And you know, they're welcome to, to do that. I don't, I don't have a problem with it. Um, it's just I don't think it's going to win versus what I'm doing.
0: Alrighty, well, that is it for our conversation with Josh Brown of Ritholtz Wealth Management. Josh, it was really great to talk to you. Thanks so much for spending the time with us, and and a pleasure as always.
1: Yeah, and listen, I, I I'm sorry I came on drunk, but I appreciate you going through with the interview anyway. I think that, that <laughs> I think that really says a lot about like your character and your loyalty to your friends. So um, I won't do it for the follow up, but I just it's been a tough morning.
0: Uh, Josh is at Reform Broker on Twitter. Thanks very much, Josh. All right, Georgie. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bespoke Cast. Once again, I'm Bespoke Investment Group's macro strategist, George Perks. If you enjoy Bespokecast, please consider reviewing the podcast in the iTunes store or on your favorite podcast platform. Reviews help us gain visibility and also help us improve the podcast in future episodes. If you'd like to learn more about our firm, please visit BespokePremium.com and follow us on Twitter at BespokeInvest. Subscribers to our research receive access to the Bespoke cast one week before public release, in addition to the wide range of reports, datasets, analysis, and commentary that we send out daily. Special thanks to the Free Music Archive for the music in this episode. The track is called Marathon Man by Jason Shaw and is made available under the Creative Commons license. Please visit freemusicarchive.org for more information. Copyright 2016 Bespoke Investment Group LLC. The information herein was obtained from sources which Bespoke Investment Group LLC believes to be reliable, but we do not guarantee its accuracy. Neither the information nor any opinions expressed constitute a solicitation of the purchase or sale of any securities or related instruments. Bespoke Investment Group LLC is not responsible for any losses incurred from any use of this information.